0: In 2004, a new phenomenon was uh, uh, spread out across the uh, North American entertainment industry. It goes by two simple words. It's called Biggest Loser. Unleashed in that year, a new TV series that focused on Americans trying to lose weight you are probably by now familiar with the concept as uh, Biggest Loser uh, paraphernalia has made its way all across the internet, stores, there's diets, there's health products, there's uh, uh, workout regimens, and all kinds of things. Biggest Loser is a worldwide phenomenon. Almost every other major country that has a television network has their own version of the Biggest Loser. The concept is simple. Uh, the contestants are uh, selected and uh, whatever way they select them, (laughs) and the objective is to lose as much weight as you can uh, during the allotted time. But it's not just the amount of weight that you are supposed to lose, it's the percentage of your body weight. So it doesn't matter uh, what size you are to start, the competition is between uh, men and women, and as long as your percentage is higher than anyone else, you get to take home uh, in North America the $250,000 prize. The TV show documents their progress when they start and, and uh, how much they weigh and then the weekly weigh-in and all the drama that's involved, as well as their workout regimen and their diet and all that stuff. And like I said, uh, the personalities from the TV show have gone on to uh, have their own shows, uh, develop their own product lines. It's quite the phenomenon. By now, we've had 74 winners worldwide. And um, the, uh, the person who holds a record is from Season 8, Danny Cahill. Who lost? Guess how much percentage of his body weight? Anybody want to take a guess? 55.6% of his body weight. Very good. Informed. Very informed. Uh, 55.6%. That's over half his self. (laughs) If you can believe that. Uh, And uh, over the course of time between 2004 and the present, the term biggest loser has in our culture changed its meaning. Prior to that, prior to this uh, series, if you will, if you had come to someone and say, hey, you're the biggest loser, it probably would have a very negative connotation. But probably by now in your office or somewhere in your family pool, someone has come up to you and offered or invited you to be part of a Biggest Loser competition. And don't raise your hands because we don't really want to know. But I'm sure that there are some of you who actually have already participated or might currently be participating in a Biggest Loser competition. And you have never said to yourself before, I want to be the Biggest Loser. And yet, like I said, the word itself, the phrase itself has changed its meaning Quite a bit. Gone from something negative to something actually people aspire to be. It's, it, unknowingly, it's sought to redefine this phrase, this terminology. That you have to lose in order to win. But for you and me, that's actually a very familiar concept. Please, if you would, open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew we are in chapter 10. The book of Matthew has been uh, giving us our marching orders. Chapter 10, if, uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, if you're new to our church community, there's probably a Bible right in the pew in front of you. We hope that there is. Or if you've brought your own, please open it up to the first gospel of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 10. We will be reading uh, right now in verse 37. But Matthew chapter 10 has been our marching orders. Uh, Jesus had been gathering with his disciples After some time of doing the work of ministry, and now he's getting ready to actually send them out, release them, or unleash them. They have been trained. They have been taught. They have been uh, disciplined, at least to some degree. And now Jesus is about to let them go out to sort of experience this firsthand. But as he's getting ready to send them out, he he wants to make sure they understand what they are about to do. And this is where we find this phrase. Chapter 10, verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You've probably heard uh, that phrase. It's repeated in the Gospels, in other places uh, 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 more poignantly, where Jesus says, Well, what's it worth if you save your life but lose your soul? For whoever wants to find his life must lose it. Jesus says, In order to win in this concept, you have to be a, a loser. It's fascinating, we've been talking about the last several weeks, the roller coaster that he's been taking the disciples on. But I want you to start with me back at the beginning of this passage, and we're going to ride the roller coaster because this is the end. This is the, 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 this is the last bit of instructions that Jesus gives them before they are actually unleashed. So if you would, just turn the page back for a second, and we go back to the starting point. This is chapter 9, verse 35. Uh, As I mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus was making his way through the towns, conducting his ministry, revealing, not just talking, but actually doing what he had been sent to do. When Jesus began his ministry, he said, I have come to preach good news, freedom from the oppressed, sight to the blind." I have come to bring freedom and healing. He said, this is what I'm going to do. And then he proceeded to actually do it. In the course of him doing, he had gathered his disciples. He had selected them, called them out, invited them, and they had followed him, and they were watching him do it. And by the time we get to chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus has been busy, and he gets back to this spot here, and he looks out, and, and just read with me. We're going to read quickly. Jesus nine thirty-five. Jesus went through the town's villages, teaching, preaching the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So just so you know, this is how Jesus operates. He doesn't just talk about it. He's also doing it. Significant point. Jesus, before he sends out his people and says, I want you to do this, he makes sure he does it himself. He's, he's, he's preaching, teaching, and healing. And then he sees the crowds and he has compassion because there are so many of them and because they're harassed and helpless. And then he turns to his disciples and he uses this kind of cute phrase. He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, workers are few. And he says, please pray. Please pray that the Lord of the Harvest would send people out. It's really funny. I wonder if he's speaking tongue-in-cheek because he looks at them, and they had had to know that he was meaning them. But he doesn't say, you're going to be those guys. First he says, you should pray that that God would send people out to his. Let's pray about it. Have you ever had that reaction when confronted with need? Or, or maybe when you presented a need, an issue, a situation, and you said, I need help, and someone said to you, we should pray about it. Nothing wrong with prayer. In fact, it unlocks the key. But oftentimes, we have gotten accustomed to using this phrase as an escape from actually doing anything. No amens? Someone says, I need help. I need, well, you should pray about that. And with that, we take our leave. So Jesus turns and he says, pray that the Lord would send more workers. And perhaps the disciples have, had come to this point where maybe this is where some of them were, where they would say, yeah, you're right, Jesus. There's so much work to do out there. Yeah, he really should send somebody. It's a, like, kind of a familiar dialogue for those of us that are in ministry. Because as you know, in most churches, only a small percentage of people do the majority of the work. But the majority of people have a lot to say about how the small percentage of people are actually doing the work. And I have those conversations with people who say, "You, we should. this should be happening. Somebody should do this. Somebody should do that. And, and when we say, well, well, who do you think that should be? I don't know. But we should definitely ask. We should pray about that. Somebody should. And so Jesus says to the disciples, can you guys please pray that somebody would go out there? And the disciples, I'm sure, say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to pray about that. Much in the same way when we talk about these things in church and we say the world needs us and amen. we got to tell the people about Jesus and about his love. Yes, preacher, go on. Say amen. Somebody should do it. Let's pray about it now. And we'll see you next week. And as they're praying or probably saying, yes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus begins to turn to them. And he says, he calls them together and he says, now I'm going to give you authority. And that was the first moment where they're like, wait, wait, uh, for what? Hold on a second. I'm going to give you authority. And and, and the disciples are gathered together, he says, and you are going to drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. So this is a different kind of a call. See, um, uh, Jesus calls them not to go and preach just yet. Did you notice that? When he looks out on the, on, on the crowds and he, see he has compassion because they're harassed and helpless, he doesn't say, so I'm going to send you out to indoctrinate them. He doesn't say, now that you see the need is so vast, I want you to go out there and talk their ears off. I'm giving you authority to tell them how sinful they are. I'm giving you authority to go out there and shake your fingers and, 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 and set them straight. No, he says, I'm giving you authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. This is fascinating because, because, you haven't seen a whole lot of that around here, have you? Or people say since then. Jesus sends out his disciples on their very first task Not to preach, not yet to baptize, not to start churches or Bible studies, but to heal and to wrestle with demons. That sound like fun to you? That sound like something you signed up for when you showed up to church this morning? And the disciples are thinking, what is going on here? I'm not quite sure. And Jesus says, I want you to go out. And, and, and go out, I'm going to tell you specifically, don't go out amongst the Gentiles. Go out amongst the Jews. And Jesus says, I don't want you to go out where you are anonymous. I don't want you to go where you, no one will know so you won't be embarrassed. You know, because that's, that's significant. A lot of us have an easier time being Christians where nobody knows us than being Christians where everybody knows us. Right? We have this sort of self consciousness about admitting that we believe in God or that we believe in these things amongst the people whose opinion we value. Sometimes it's easier to go knock door to door than to tell our wife something. And Jesus says, No, 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 don't go out there. First day amongst, right here, right here in Israel. And, and, and I want you to heal the sick, wait, uh, yes, drawing demons, but raise the dead. It's getting worse. Raise the dead. Heal those who have leprosy, freely have received, freely give. Okay, I'm sending you out. You're going to do these amazing things. You remember this. But, but just so you know, don't take any money, no cash, no credit cards, no extra bag, no nothing, no, no extra underwear, no extra shoes. Just go because I'm going to provide everything. I'm going to provide everything. Sure, and if anyone doesn't listen to you, things are going to be bad for them. But that's none of your concern. I'm sending you out. You have to be shrewd as snake, innocent as doves. Guard your motives. Guard your motives. I'm sending you out. You're going to have this authority, but you have to guard your motives. You cannot go out with the authority of God on your own motives. And, and this is something that the Christian church has, has, and the Adventist church for that matter, has <clears throat> misunderstood over centuries, taking the authority of God, the name of God, the banner of God, but with their own motives to conquer, obtain, control. But Jesus says, guard your heart, shoot his snakes, innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. All kinds of bad things are going to happen. Just be aware. All kinds of bad things are going to happen. You're going to be handed over. You're going to be placed in front of people to, to, to defend me. <clears throat> But I'm going to be right there with you. When you're persecuted in one place, go to another. And and just remember, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. This is verse 24. But he says, don't be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of the people that can hurt you physically. And this is the disciples thinking, wait, I give up being a fisherman for this? They were okay with the authority part. They were okay with the sort of notoriety part of the crowds coming and being popular. But I'm not quite sure they were okay with physical hurt. Most of us would do the same. We're okay with coming and receiving and and even dressing the part. But if it was going to be pain involved today, would you have come? If there was going to be physical pain involved today, would you have chosen to be here? Jesus says, so you know, you're going to be hurt. But don't be afraid of the people that are actually going to hurt you. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Not just hurt you, by the way, but you might be killed. Then Jesus says, don't worry, because are not two sparrows sold for a penny? But none of them fall to the ground except for the will of your Father. And even the very hairs on your hair are numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Do not suppose I have come to bring peace. Jesus says, I'm no. I've come to turn people against each other. Because when you do what I'm about to set you out on, you will find opposition. And opposition from right very close to you. From the people that you currently trust. From those that you currently surround yourself with. That's where you're going to find the most opposition. And then he says this. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. It's a fascinating statement in our culture because... As I mentioned last week, North Americans are, we're driven by I, but, but, but second to that, what we consider a noble cause is family. North Americans are, are big on family. Kind of weird, nuclear family, not really extended family, but we're big on family. My family, got to take care of my kids, at least in popular culture. We protect them from the outside. We, we don't really protect them from ourselves, though, so it's kind of funny. But Jesus says, but if you love your father or mother more than me, you are not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's fascinating contradictions here because obviously Jesus is not trying to undo what God has set in motion from the Old Testament to honor your father and mother. To put that onus of respect on us towards our parents. And, 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 and later in the command, in, in the New Testament, Paul says, don't exasperate your children. You know, love, care you you haven't been set to be a family of god to create havoc but jesus says you have to understand who's going to be first in your life and then he says this and anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me he mentions this and it, this would have uh, it doesn't raise any eyebrows with us but but for them to taking up a cross is a symbol of utter humiliation because in their day and age the worst criminals would be hung on a cross public humiliation as you know you're a student you wouldn't die on the cross on the first day, probably not till the third or fourth day. So people would have to see you. You die of like asphyxiation mostly. Not really flesh wounds. And people would see you and pass by, and they would put you in public places, and so everyone could mock you and ridicule you. So so if, if the physical anguish didn't hurt you, the humiliation should kill you. And Jesus says, anyone who's not willing to go that far to take up his own cross, which is who would do that? Who would put themselves out for humiliation and ridicule? Who would put themselves out, take up your own cross? It just kind of glosses over our, our heads when we talk about it. But who would do that? Nobody. Nobody in their right mind would submit themselves to that. But Jesus says, anyone who doesn't do that is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he sends them out with that last phrase. And notice the big contradiction between what the disciples thought they were getting into versus what they're actually called to do. See, the disciples thought, along the way, as they reveal these intentions throughout the the New Testament, that Jesus was going to be a political Savior. That Jesus was going to be a material Savior. These were blue-collar guys who were suddenly meeting with somebody that had fame, natural power, authority, and that they thought could possibly rise to the throne. And that when he got up that high, he would look on them favorably. They asked him. They asked him. They said, when when you get in power, can I be right there next to you? Can I be your secretary of state? Can I get ambassador to Tahiti? That's my personal request. And they were looking to line themselves up. They were fighting amongst each other to see who was second in line, who, who who he would favor. Because they figured that when he came to prominence, he would have material wealth, authority, power, and other worldly things to give them. Even religious freedoms that they considered more cultural freedoms. And so when he had called them and they accepted, they saw the miracles, they saw the healing, but deep down inside, all they really wanted was to improve their position in life. And Jesus says, that's what you came for, but what I've actually called you is to lose your position in life. I'm sending you out to completely lose your life. To to, to expose yourself to humiliation. Ridicule, punishment, pain, and hurt. And none of that so you can get something out of it. All of that for the healing of others, the casting out of demons, the the cleansing of leprosy. Everything that Jesus asks from them is other-directed. And every provision that he promises on their behalf is so that they can be other-directed. And you know why this is important to us and why we talk about it today? Because... Because as a church, as a community, we have been lulled into forgetting that this is the true call of God. As Christians, Seventh-day Adventists, those of us who have been in church for a long time, maybe at some point we were excited to go out and take up our cross and do for God, but over the course of time, all we really want is to improve our situation in life. So we come to church and we say, okay, God, what are you going to do for me today? We come to our religious leaders, pastors, teachers, and other people, and we say, okay, what have you done for me lately? How is this going to improve my situation? How is listening to your little speech going to make my life better? What am I getting out of this? The service was good today. I felt uplifted. The service was terrible today. I did not like X, Y, or Z. It's all about I. But the call of God is not like that. The call of God is to lose the I. In fact, to be the biggest loser. For whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. So ask yourself this question. For the sake of God, what have you lost recently? What have you dared to risk, even? And if there's no pain, no humiliation, if there's no one else in your heart that you're concerned over, that you're willing to actually submit yourself to some rigors for, then when you get up on that scale and check your percentage of body weight loss, are you actually just going the other way? Are you actually just gaining? Is that all you're in this room for? To see how much God will give you and to judge Him on that? Then, if that's the case, we are sorely mistaken. That's not what He says. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Church, we've got to do more than just come here and wait to be filled That's not Christianity. We've got to do more to just come here and listen and see how that might help improve my situation. We actually have to give our life away. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. And without that, then you'll never be able to experience Christ's kingdom. So, want to be the biggest loser?